Last Sunday afternoon, being the first Sunday of the month, we went out with the neighborhood ambassadors, as we are traditioned to do. We went door-to-door in uh, a number of neighborhoods east of the property here with varying degrees of, of responsiveness on the part of those people whom we had the um, privilege of talking to about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a good thing to do, to get out into the neighborhoods and to talk to people. And, and I just have to confess that if, if it were not for that ministry, I don't believe that I would be doing it, Jim. I, uh, there would be a million other things that would come and crowd me out. And so uh, your faithfulness to organize that and be there and uh, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, man, my body says sleep. <laughs> and uh, yet once we get going, it's, it's always profitable. It is always spiritually edifying to be involved in that. So I'm just, uh, I'm just thankful to the Lord for that ministry. And as we go door to door and we begin to engage people about the truth claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're, we're going somewhere, or at least we're trying to go somewhere with them. We're, we're trying to take them in a certain direction. We want to talk to them about sin and, and uh, judgment and salvation, those kinds of topics. And we're sort of driving towards a question, uh, ultimately, you know, something to the effect of, do you want to become a Christian or, or would you like to pray to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And, and many of our gospel presentations, you know, we kind of end with that, either in the Neighborhood Ambassadors or in, in any kind of encounter that you or I might have with friends or family members. We sort of go that far with it. And it's appropriate. I mean, we, we should be driving to a conclusion here. We, the idea is to, is to lead someone to the place where they understand their need for a Savior, for the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to invite them, as Jesus did, to come and to follow Him. So that's all good. That's all appropriate. But uh, one thing that's, that frequently happens to us, I think, in that whole evangelistic presentation is we, we sort of skip over a topic a topic called the cost of discipleship. Frequently in our, in our enthusiasm and in our zeal to, to see people make a commitment to Jesus Christ, we, we sort of leapfrog over one of the aspects of the Christian life, which is the issue of cost. Salvation is free, paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it costs you everything at the same time to follow Christ. And having worked here in John's Gospel this week, and, and we'll continue there in a couple of weeks hence, this whole issue of the cost of discipleship has really been crowding in on me. I've been thinking about this. You know, if, if we pass over that topic until later on, I, I think we do a disservice to those for whom we most desperately want to see come to a true life-changing faith commitment to Jesus Christ. If we, if we delay the issue of cost until a later date, we, 
we run a risk of sort of a half-hearted commitment to Christ, an early profession that maybe doesn't hold up later on. Later on, people find out that following Jesus Christ is not just something you add to the rest of your life. It becomes your life, and, and that's a steeper price than they want to pay. And so they sort of slide back away. They fall back away from Christ. Or others, and this is particularly rampant, I think, in, in evangelicalism, is they'll, they'll redefine what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and all the hard things they'll define out. They'll make them optional. That's for some Christians who want to follow Christ like that, but, but I don't want to. And that wasn't the front-end deal anyway. Sort of conditions added after the fact, and, and I don't like them. And, and beloved, either one of those options, it's either falling back from Christ or this, this notion that discipleship has all kinds of options, you know, like buying a new car. I don't need power windows and I don't want power door locks and, and I'm not going to pay for them. And so people have the notion they can delete from their discipleship those things that are offensive to them. That's dangerous. That is really dangerous. What does it cost? To follow Jesus Christ. In a word, it costs everything. It costs everything. To follow Jesus Christ means giving up everything else. Listen the way Jesus said it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. It's amazing. He's got crowds following him, and he's now going to turn around, and he is just going to speak to them in such a way that he's going to disperse them. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot... Be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel, whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks terms of peace. So then, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What does it cost to follow Jesus Christ? It costs everything. Everything we have. It may cost us our families. It may cost us our friends. It may cost us our fortunes. And it may even cost us our own physical lives. 
price is high. Salvation is free, yet the price is high. As you uh, read through the book of Acts, you see persecution, don't you? That early church. It began to flourish and spread out around the Mediterranean basin, particularly in Turkey, and then leapfrogging over into Greece and rolling back down around, then all the way to Rome. Christianity began to grow, but, but a reading of the book of Acts also confirms the persecution grew with it. Virtually every place the Apostle Paul went, he was persecuted. A number of them are recorded for us in the book of Acts, but, but many more are left out. book of Acts closes sometime around AD 62, three decades after the crucifixion of Christ. The church is moving rapidly, but the persecution is intensifying. And in the book of Acts, it's noticeable that most of the persecution is from the Jewish establishment, the Jewish authorities. It, it originates in the synagogues. That's where the intensity of the persecution comes. You read through the book of Acts, and, and the Roman government is, is pretty much apathetic towards Christianity. In fact, Paul uses his Roman citizenship several times to sort of extricate himself from a, from a serious predicament. Well, after the book of Acts, that changes. And the persecution moves beyond Judaism and becomes Roman in its origins. And as, and as severe as Jewish persecution was, it was nothing like Roman persecution. The Romans systematized it. To be a Christian, the first few centuries under Roman rule was a very dangerous commitment. Listen to what the Roman historian Tacitus, speaking of Christians, how he defined them. Or rather, the, the, put it, the people, their attitude towards Christians, that's a better way. Tacitus says, they were hated for their crimes, those whom the mob called Christians. Let that sink in. They were hated for their crimes, those who were called Christians. Suetonius, another Roman Christian, he wrote the following. He said, Christians are a race of men who belong to a new and evil superstition. Why? What is it about Christianity that caused the Romans to, to consider them evil men, to consider them superstitious people, criminals? What was it that caused the, such an intense hatred of the society for these followers of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to conceive, isn't it? I mean, we don't consider Christians criminals. We don't consider Christians evil people. But in the first couple of centuries, that's very much the way they were thought. So why? What was it about them? I'm indebted here a little bit to uh, William Barclay in his commentary on John. He does a very fine job of laying out some of these charges. So let me, let me just call a few of them to your attention. Christians were said to be insurrectionists. 
insurrectionists, because they would not burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. The Roman Empire was far flung. It, it went all the way from modern Iran, you know, all the way to England. All kinds of various tribal peoples, religions. And actually, Rome was very tolerant in the practice of religion. You could, you could practice whatever religion you wanted to practice in the Roman Empire with no problems at all, provided that you would do one thing. There was one, one issue of national unity to draw together this divergent empire. And that one thing is, is that you had to, once a year, burn a pinch of incense and proclaim Caesar is Lord. That's it. Do that and then worship whoever you want, however you want. But the Christians had a problem, right? Because not Caesar is Lord, but... Jesus is Lord. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so they were viewed as insurrectionists. They were viewed as disloyal to the empire. They were viewed as those that would, that would follow another Caesar. They were evil in the eyes of their contemporaries. And so the persecution would come. Beyond that, they were said to be cannibals. And this is based on a, on a misnomer, understanding the Lord's Supper. This is my body, right? This is the cup of my, you know, the blood of the new covenant. As often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the kingdom. So the, the, the suspicious evil minds of the crowd would latch onto those words and they would say that what they're really doing is they are cannibals. Their services, by the way, were not... Open. They didn't practice an open where they would invite the community much like we do today. They wouldn't hold an Easter service and advertise it in the newspaper saying, come one, come all. They would meet quietly. They would meet somewhat secretively, at least as it appeared from their neighbor's point of view. By the way, they're not meeting on Sunday morning either. They're meeting at night after they're done working. They would go away to someone's house and they would meet and they would, and they would celebrate this meal of the body and the blood of someone. They're cannibals. That's a particularly vile and loathsome practice. And so they were hated for that. They were also said to practice gross immorality. Because once a week they would have a love feast. They would gather together and they would have a love feast. And, and when they greeted one another, they would greet one another with a kiss, a holy kiss. And so those people of debased mind would latch on to the notion of a kiss for a greeting and a love feast. And they would conceive all kinds of abominable sexual practices to be going on in these private meetings. Paul says in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their mind and their conscience are defiled. And, and so those neighbors whose minds and consciences were defiled would imagine all kinds of abominations going on in these private meetings. They were said to be incendiaries. Incendiaries. They spoke in their meetings often about the second coming of their Lord. 
And that when he came, the day of the Lord would be marked by fire, devastation. One of their writers, Peter by name, wrote in a letter we call Second Peter. He said that the, the elements would be melted in intense heat and the whole universe would, would be destroyed by fire and then be recreated. And so they were thought to be incendiaries. And so it was easy when Nero conducted his urban improvement plan by burning down four-fifths of the city of Rome to blame it on these Christians. The mobs quickly latched onto that. And so they were incendiaries. They were arsonists. Fifth charge. This one really does land home. They were said to tamper with family relationships. Tamper with family relationships. They divided up families. They split up marriages. They caused children to turn against their parents. Because to follow Jesus Christ, there is no higher allegiance than Him, is there? So this charge lands true. Not intentionally, of course, but it becomes the byproduct of, a, of following Christ in a close relationship. It may bring division within your own home. It may turn you against or your parents against you. It may turn your wife or your husband against you. What you once did, you can no longer do. That can break up a home. The final charge against them was that they were said to be atheists. They were atheists. Because they worshipped an invisible God. The rest of the empire worshipped a God you could see. You'd kind of carry him around, put him down, bow down, worship him, pick him up, move him on. But they worshipped an invisible God, and so they were thought to be atheists. Amazing, isn't it? How times have changed. Open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 15. Did I write part one on the front of this? Did I? Good. That was strategic. <laughs> Hated without a cause. In the next couple of weeks, as we work through this section together, this is going to be, um, it's going to be really startling for us. You know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, some of whom are suffering intense persecution. There are people who are losing family, friends, fortunes, even their own lives for the sake of the gospel. But here in America, we are so insulated. We are living in some kind of a bubble. In fact, we're in our own subculture. There is a, you can, you can live this life today in America without essentially meeting anybody who doesn't claim Christ. Now, I'm not saying they're all Christians, but that they at least claim some kind of allegiance to Jesus Christ. We've got our own bookstores. 
We've got our own newspapers. We've got our own magazines. We have our own television stations. We have our own radio stations. We even have our own yellow pages so that you can shop with only people who have ichthus on their business cards. I mean, we are living in an incredible bubble. Isolated, cut off. And so when you talk about persecution in the American church, and, and beloved, I'm not talking from any experience. I have never been persecuted. Ever. But I'm not alone, because neither have you. Oh, we talk about suffering for Jesus. We don't even know what it means. We're living in a, in a bubble in history. And so to, to read and, and, and to expand and elaborate and unfold what, what's before us here in John 15 is, is going to be really hard. We're going to have to reach for it. But it's here for our purpose. It's here for our edification. It's here because the bubble will not last forever. It will pop. The Apostle Paul said that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. It will come. I do not know when. You do not know when. But it will come. And we need to prepare ourselves for the fires when they come. That's what Jesus is doing here in John 15. This is the upper room. He's going to be dead in, or on that cross in a few hours. He's only got a, a little bit of time left. And he's going to speak to the, his disciples about the most important things. And so he will take the precious time to talk to them about persecution because it's coming. Of course, we know that, right? We, we can read the book of Acts. We see it unfold. We read church history. We see it unfold. The problem is we're living in the bubble today and we don't see it anywhere around us. And so we must think, well, that was for another time and place. But, beloved, it could be for our time and our place. And I'm not wishing for it. Don't misunderstand me. I am not looking forward to being persecuted. I am not brave. I do not want to, to have someone, you know, gouge out my eyes for Christ. I pray for the grace to, to commit to Him in the face of whatever it takes. But I'm not looking for it. But I am telling you that I think it's coming. I think it's coming. And look how Jesus prepares them. John 15. No, just look. Just look at verse 16. The end of verse 16, he's talking about prayer. Do you see that? Your fruit should remain. I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Your fruit should remain. That you should ask of my Father in my name, and he'll give it to you. One of the means of preparing yourself for persecution and the bearing of fruit in the midst of it, because that's the next topic in the sermon on, here in the upper room, is dependence upon the Lord in prayer. We just got to pray more. And I'm like you. The better things are going, the less I pray. And the worse it gets, the more I pray. Prayer is dependence upon God. And, and that's one of the means 
of encountering the persecution. The second one really is before us in verses 17 and following. And that's just to become aware of the fact that it's coming. Just be aware of the reality that persecution is coming. Don't think, not me, not now, not never. As long as we vote the right person into the White House, we're okay. Don't believe that. When in the sovereign providence of God, He removes His hand, it will come crashing in. And it will scatter the church if we are not prepared for it. So we must prepare ourselves for the eventuality. Jesus is going to give instruction here on the hatred of the world towards the followers of Christ. These are men who have walked with Jesus Christ for the last three and a half years. And they've really suffered little or no persecution during that time. Jesus himself has borne the brunt of the persecution for their whole time together. But he is leaving them. And so what he's going to tell them is, listen, I'm leaving you. And all that has come upon me, I've been, I've been like your Superman standing in front of you. You know, all the bullets have, have hit my chest and nothing's come through to you. But I'm leaving and it's coming. It's coming. And it doesn't take very long for us to, to see it. It's only a decade later in Acts chapter 12 when Herod Agrippa takes James, the brother of John, and executes him, right? And throws, and the crowd loves it so much, he grabs Peter and throws him in the, in the jail too, and he's going to do him in next. Doesn't take very long. Persecution of Stephen drives the church out. It's coming. So he's warning them. He's making perfectly clear to them the cost of discipleship. I better read the text. I'm almost done. and I haven't even read the text yet. That's all introduction. Here we go. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this. In order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. When the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. 
But these things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, that you may remember that I told you of them. This is the grim part of the upper room discourse. This is the transition from fruit-bearing, from love to persecution. And as we go through this section together, and I don't know, it'll take us a couple of weeks, maybe three, I don't know. As we go through this section together, there are really three facts regarding the world's hatred of Christianity. Three facts out of this big, long section. We'll pull it together. I'm not, we'll go through it somewhat chronologically, but I'm going to rearrange some verses topically as we go through this. So we see the three facts regarding the world's hatred of Christianity that we must understand if we are to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. The first fact this morning so we must understand the reality of hatred. We must understand the reality of hatred. It is real. It is there. We must not be caught unawares. Verses 17 and 18. This I command you that you love one another. The world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. Back to back, two verses. The biggest contrast he could imagine are, are put there. Love, 17. Hatred, 18. The defining characteristic of two groups of people. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, the defining characteristic is love. For those who are outside the family of God, the defining characteristic is hatred. Hatred. And beloved, it is in an environment of hatred that we as followers of Christ are called to live in love. We are to love one another, and we went through that in excruciating detail over the last weeks, in an environment that is entirely hostile. That there are not, there is not a cultivating, nourishing environment in which we are called to practice the love for one another. Indeed, just the opposite. The environment in which we must practice this love is an environment that hates our guts. It is a violent, aggressive, settled hatred. It may masquerade as a passing indifference for a while. But it will not remain concealed forever. The true nature will spring forth, and it is hatred. In this section, the word hate or hatred is used seven times. Seven times, Jesus repeats, you'll be hated. There is hatred. He does not want us to miss it. It is as natural for the unsaved man to hate as it is for the saved man to love. It is their sphere of operation. It is the characteristic that defines them. Paul in Galatians chapter 5, he's, he's very clear to draw the contrast, the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. One is hatred, one is love. We're to love. 
But we are to love in a world that hates. By the way, this should not be uh, depressing. I can't think of a, of a better way to display the, the reality of what the gospel does. Right? It takes us from being haters and makes us into lovers. It shouldn't be hard for us to, to um, contrast ourselves with the world around us. If we're living as we're supposed to be living, that is. Now, this unpopularity for Christians is really, at its core, a hatred of God. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. By the way, this conditional clause, if the world hates you, that is a... Um, that should not be taken to, to, as to indicate that there's maybe some doubt about that reality. It is, a, it is a fact. It is a settled reality that the world does indeed hate the followers of Jesus Christ. And the hatred of Christ himself, again, look at verse 14. If the world hates you, and it does, know that it has hated me. Perfect tense, Greek verb. Settled hatred with an ongoing reality to it. It's not they hated Christ sometime in the past. They hated him in the past and their hatred is enduring. It is unabated. There is no diminishment with the passage of time. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Don't be surprised, you say. Do not be surprised that you are hated. It should not come as a shock when we are treated badly for Christ's sake. That shouldn't, we shouldn't go, why did they do that? It shouldn't shock us at all. Earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 10 and following, he said, Blessed are you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, or those rather, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pay attention, look around, read the, read the scripture, see how the people of God have always been treated, and then assume that that's the kind of treatment that you are going to get too. And if that happens, you won't be surprised. The surprise comes when we think we deserve better than that. Hey, I'm a nice guy. You know, why, why would somebody speak to me like that? I'm just, a, I'm a nice guy. I didn't do anything to them. There's a settled opposition. Settled opposition. If the world hates you, verse 18, and it does, know that it hates me and always has and always will. And then you'll begin to see reality. 
as God sees it. Psalm 36, 9. In your light we see light. You want to understand reality? You've got to see it through the lens of Scripture. You must understand the reality of the hatred. This past week, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal, May the 2nd. It went out over all the wires and on the radio and so forth. It, it kind of illustrates, I guess, a little bit maybe, this settled hatred for things godly. Kind of an irrational hatred. Maybe some of you heard this. Wall Street Journal, May 2nd, 2005. Quote, Brazil refused $40 million in American AIDS grants to protest the U.S. requirement that recipients first sign a pledge condemning prostitution. In order to get the U.S. aid money for, or U.S. foreign aid to fight AIDS, the government has to be willing, the government of these recipient nations has to be willing to sign a pledge that says that we are in opposition to prostitution. Now, that doesn't really sound too bad to me, right? Well, Brazil didn't like that, and so they turned the money down. Well, that's fine. Brazil can do whatever they want, right? They don't have to take aid from the U.S. But listen to the terminology that, that they used when they turned it down, and that's the thing that I want you to grab onto. Quote, We can't control the disease, okay, AIDS, with principles that are Manichaean, theological, fundamentalist, and Shiite, said uh, Pedro Checker, I guess, director of Brazil's AIDS program and chairman of the National Commission that made the decision to turn down further U.S. money as long as the anti-prostitution pledge requirements remain in place. He said commission members, including cabinet ministers, scientists, church representatives, and outside activists, viewed U.S. demands as, quote, interference that harms the Brazilian policy regarding diversity, ethical principles, and human rights, close quotes. Okay? So what he's saying is that if that's the terms under which you give us money, terms that are Manichaean, by the way, um, um, Manichae was, uh, I think it was 3rd century heretic, okay, originated in, in Iran, and basically, it's a Gnostic kind of heresy that says that everything is boiled down to ultimately good and evil. Okay? And the thing, I reason I believe he used the word Manichaean here is because one of the, one of the um, tenets of Manichaeism was total sexual abstinence. Okay? Which um, is not so bad. It makes it sort of die out. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, that's for free. The, but the, the bigger point is that he says that, that this policy is Manichaean because it's saying that you, that you have to sign a pledge saying that you, will, that you are opposed to prostitution. See, they've taken, they've taken prostitution and they've kind of rolled that over and they're saying if you're opposed to prostitution, that means that you're Manichaean. That means you're opposed to, to sexual relations between men and women. That is so nuts. Theological, fundamentalist, Shiite... I mean, if he could have thought of a few more adjectives, they'd have probably loaded them in there, too. Okay? I mean, that's like, no thank you, we, we don't want your money. Okay? That's, we don't want your stinking money in 
You know, and to the horse you rode in on, too, right? You're really giving it to them. Beloved, we live in that kind of a world. It is a world that is, is angry. The world is full of hatred. And the, and the focal point of the hatred is going to become us. The world hates God. And it hates us because we are His people. Well, I, I had more to say this morning, but it won't happen today. Okay, you'll have to come back for another installment. But there is a reality out there. Okay, that's the world we live in. If you're here this morning, You're, you're with us, maybe first time, maybe you've been with us some time, maybe you've been here years, maybe, maybe you've been here longer than me. There's something that's, that's really on your heart this morning. Question, unresolved question in your mind, maybe something that's come up through the, your Bible reading, maybe it's just an incident in life, maybe you want to, maybe just the whole situation with Lynn and Bernie. Many, many spiritual needs that we all have. What I want you to do is I want you to encourage you to come and to talk to someone. Let us open the Bible with you and, and show you what God's Word has to say about the situation. Maybe it's about the state of your own soul. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe this whole issue of a, of a costly discipleship is, is brand new to you. Maybe scary. We encourage you to come. We'll have some spiritual counselors that'll be standing over there by that lighted cross after service. When people are up and they're milling around, you just go over there and, and you ask your question. Okay? We want we want to be able to answer it for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, some people probably think I'm crazy to talk on Mother's Day about being hated. But Lord, uh, we are in a spiritual battle, and so uh, while there's a place certainly for sentiment, following your, uh, your lead, Lord, when you only had a little time left, you didn't spend much time talking about sentiment. You instead talked about the hard, cold realities of life. Lord God, you know I didn't go fishing for this text. It's came searching for me. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make use of the sermon this morning. Not because of any good thing I've said, and there's no brilliance here. Just to the extent I've been faithful to your word, Father, we... And trust that it will not return void. May your spirit take it and apply it in a needful way in our hearts. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.